0: Good evening. My name is Jason, staff pastor here at Grace Downtown. Thanks for worshiping with us tonight. In just a moment, we're going to take a look at this scripture that Amy just read to the kids and to us, but... uh, We are also going to look at some other scripture as well. But before we do, a couple of things. Uh, First off, in case you missed it last week, I announced last week that I'm going to be going on a sabbatical this spring. So uh, starting the day after Easter, going through the end of June, I will um, have 12 weeks off of office hours and nine weeks off of worshiping here at Grace Downtown, uh, taking some time to rest and also serve my family. It's something that the elders have graciously offered and I have accepted. So that is coming up. If you missed that It was in our weekly email this week. If you don't get our weekly emails and would like to, you can go back to the offering box, which is straight down this aisle before you go out the door, and you can fill out a connection card and you can join our email list to be aware of when we're having meals and um, notes like the sabbatical and things like that so you can know what is coming up. So join that email list if you'd like to stay updated. We don't spam you to death. It's just every Wednesday afternoon you get an email with three quick things uh, by way of rem- Reminder. Uh, one last note is um, we want to really know one another and we want to know and serve you. Uh, people come to Grace downtown for a, a lot of different reasons. I met a couple last week and they said this is our sleep in church. When we sleep in and miss our church, we come here because it's in the evening. Great. Glad to have you. They stayed and ate some food. It was their lucky night. You know, that's great. Uh, whether that's you or you've been uh, serving here for 10 years, we're glad you're here and we want to serve you well. And one way that we want to do that, a very important way we want to do that is praying for you. So at the end of every service, there will be folks standing up here, men and women with green lanyards on, and they are here to pray for you. No need is too big. No need is too small to be prayed for. And we want to recognize that we need the power and the help of God for everything big and small going on in our lives. So please utilize that. Uh, Don't think, oh, I just have a small little request or don't think, oh, I've already prayed for this. We would love to join you in praying even week after week for the same prayer requests uh, until you see the Lord move. So uh, please feel free tonight, as always, to come forward for prayer. Last week, we discussed how God's people in the Old Testament looked to saviors in the forms of kings and priests and judges, men and women that showed promise. Men and women who looked like heroes and saviors who would finally deliver God's people. From their sins or their oppressors. That would finally fulfill the promise that we find in Genesis 3. That the offspring of the woman would crush the enemy of God once and for all. Throughout the Old Testament there were men and women that rose up that showed this promise. Who the nation of Israel looked to to be their savior only to stumble And fall because there's a great threat to this hero's journey that we talked about last week, a great threat to these would be saviors, the threat that we see take them out time and time again is sin. This should not surprise us when we go back to the beginning of the story and we see that Adam and Eve from the very beginning sinned, as we talked about last week. It's in our spiritual heritage. It's in our blood by nature and choice. We are sinners, yet it surprises us when we come to it in the story. And even more so, it surprises us when we see it in our own lives, when what we are trying to do gets undercut by sin, by our sin or the sin of others. Tonight we will see how the world, the flesh, and the devil is against us, against God's deliverers, and against God's plan. But we will also see, remember, and celebrate the Savior that came to conquer all three on our behalf. Would you pray with me as we get started here? Heavenly Father, thank you that you have done something about our biggest problem, about mankind's biggest problem. Jesus, you have come to defeat the world, the flesh, and the devil, and help us to see plainly what you have done. Help us to, as we prayed over the last couple of weeks, help us to see the the depths of our sin and our suffering so that we can see the depths of your good news, of your grace, of your mercy. God, I pray that you would clearly communicate to us the bad news so that we would see that the gospel is indeed good news. God, I pray that you would show us clearly what we need to see tonight, and I pray that you would speak what you need to say to each one that is here tonight. God, I believe that you brought each one here, every man, woman, and child, for your purposes. And God, I pray that nothing would keep those purposes from being accomplished. In Jesus' name, amen. When we look at the Old Testament and we see its heroes, its would-be saviors, we see flaws, sin, and outright Rebellion. Last week we talked about Noah and how God selected him to continue on the human race and save creation from the great flood that would come and be a a restart, a refresh for the world and all creation. We read in Genesis 6 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is why he was chosen. In contrast to the others of the time that always did evil continually, that was what was in their heart. Noah and his family found favor in the eyes of God. This does not mean he was perfect, but it does mean that he responded to God in obedience when no one else was. But he was far from perfect. Open with me to Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 through 25. I'll put this slide up here that will highlight, that will reference the scriptures we're going to take a look at. But if you could follow along with your Bible or Bible app, we'll take a look at the world, the flesh, and the devil that undercut these would-be saviors and seemed to undercut God's plan. Genesis nine, eighteen through 25 The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on both their shoulders and walked forward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. Okay, so Noah has been faithful to God's command. He did what God commanded him to do. He built the ark to the specifications that he was to build it. He comes off of the ark. God says, I'm going to set aside my bow. I'm going to hang my bow in the clouds. It's going to be a reminder of my covenant with you. So I will remember what I've committed to. And then he recommissions Noah with the same commissioning. He gave Adam and Eve to fill the earth to multiply, to be dispersed all over the world and fill the earth with the knowledge and glory of God. Noah's first response plant a vineyard, get drunk, pass out naked. This is the would be hero, the would be savior. That at one point it was said he found favor in the eyes of God, and here we see giving in to the flesh. And not only so, but his son gives into the flesh. We're unclear exactly what this looks like, but we know from the story that he sees his father's nakedness. And then we don't know what happens. The commentaries and even in the Hebrew language, it's a little unclear. Does he do something inappropriate? Does he see something inappropriate? Does he go and laugh with his brothers and tell them that he saw his dad naked? We don't know exactly what happened, But we can tell by the brother's response that whatever he did was shameful. And not only that, Noah prophesies that this son and his sons will be in rebellion through generations. And we see that take place. We see this little footnote that his son's name would be Canaan. That may ring a bell if you've read through the Old Testament. And if you keep reading through the Old Testament, you're going to see the word Canaan over and over and over again. The Canaanites became a people that were opposed to God and his people throughout the history of the Old Testament. So we know from these things that whatever took place, it was wrong. It was shameful. It was of the flesh. So we see Noah. And his son giving into the flesh and sinning against God, though they had received this covenant, though they had received this mercy that we talked about last week, though they had received this commissioning to go and fill the earth, just like Adam and Eve had been given. Here, Noah and his family is caught up in the flesh. So the flesh, our flesh, humanity, Our creaturely nature seems to be stacked against the promise and purposes of God. Next, the devil. Genesis 6, 1 through 4. We discussed this passage last week, and I promised that we would discuss it a little more this week. Genesis 6, 1 through 4. When man began to multiply to the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives, any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh and his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. If we skip down to verse 11 through 13 of the same chapter, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. If you remember back to last week in chapter five, we see the, this genealogy, one of those lists that Amy was just talking to the kids about where all of these people are living hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And we read here that my spirit will not abide in man forever. His days shall be limited to 120 years. And then we start to see that take place after the time of Noah, people start living more like 120 or less years. So what is going on here? I think what is going on here is violence plus autonomy with God plus many years leads to destruction. These people were allowed by the common grace of God to live not decades, but centuries. And some of them we know from scripture, many of them, Their flesh was given towards destruction. Their their flesh was set on the things of this world, the things of the enemy instead of the things of God. So when you have violence, plus autonomy from God, plus many years, you are led to this mass destruction, this further separating yourself from God. There are three main theories about what the Nephilim are. One school of thought is when it says the sons of God, it is referring back to the line of Seth. That maybe these people came from the line of Seth because we're told that Seth followed in the ways of God. Unlike his brothers, Cain and Abel, he went in the ways of God. So maybe this is his offspring. That's one theory. Another theory is that this Nephilim becomes the Philistines, the giants of the land that we see later with the story of David and Goliath. Another theory is that the Nephilim is some sort of angelic being where angels were then uh, cohabitating with humans and they were actually having offspring called the Nephilim. Now, as crazy as that, sounds to our ears. There's plenty of textual um, evidence in the text, in the book of Jude, in the book of 1 Peter that we just looked at, and here in Genesis, and then again in Numbers that could go along with that. Even some uh, apocryphal books that are of the time and were renowned by the Jews, but didn't make it into the canon of scripture, that talk about this type of thing taking place. Whatever it is, Whichever of those theories we ascribe to, a couple of different things. First, the punchline is the same. And all commentators agree, whether they disagree on who the Nephilim or not, they all agree that what is trying to be communicated here is things were really bad. Things were really bad on earth. That we had violence plus autonomy from God plus many years, which led to destruction. We see here in the text God limit their years we see him in just a moment. We're going to see what Amy just read in Genesis 11 that he wants to limit the amount of destruction that they can bring to themselves and to others and to the world. That's the main punchline of what's going on here. My theory is some blend of a couple of these theories. When you think about violence plus autonomy and many years, I think that if humans are left to live for, instead of decades, centuries, they find more and more ways to sin. They find more and more ways to give in to the flesh and destroy one another. They get, find more and more ways to give in to the ways of the world. They find more and more ways to give in to the devil. And as we do that, there are spiritual things taking place. And so spirit, the dark spiritual realm interacting with the dark earthly realm is not hard to believe. So God in his grace and mercy limits how long man can live. The enemy, the devil just pours gasoline on anything he sees where our flesh is about to destroy us or others. So we see this taking place in the Old Testament. We see men and women giving over to the flesh, giving over to the ways of the world and the enemy of Christ, the enemy of the church, the enemy of anyone who follows God just pours gasoline on that and encourages it. And there is a realm of darkness as much in our modern world as we don't think about it. There is a, world of darkness. There is enemies of God in the spiritual world that are pitted against the purposes and people of God. So we see God's people and his plan undercut by the devil, by the spiritual realm. Third, the tower. We just heard this story from amy in both the kids bible and the esv bible but the world is also stacked against the people and purposes of god as amy read even in the children's bible the point of the story is not that towers or cities are bad great evil can happen in cities in the country in the suburbs in a university community These can all be a place of blessing and human flourishing and also bring opportunities for evil. The point of the story is you can see it right in the text. If you have read Genesis to Genesis chapter 11, when it says two things, it should just stick right out to us because of what we've read so far. Two things in the text. One, they tried to make a great name for themselves. That is not the commission that God gave Adam and Eve or Noah. He did not say, go make a great name for yourselves. He says, I will make you a great nation. He's going to tell Abraham that next week. Spoiler alert. He says, I'm going to make you great. And I want you to go and worship me and fill the world with news of who I am. So making a great name for themselves always leads to trouble. It has led to nothing good to this point. It will continue to lead to nothing good. And centuries later, thousands of years later, it is still bad news when humans try to make a name for themselves. The second thing that should raise up a red flag in our mind is that they wanted to come together to make one people with one language. You cannot obey the commissioning that Adam and Eve received or that Noah received... And come together to make one nation of people with one language. You literally can't accomplish the purposes of God by doing that. But they try. They come together to make a great name for themselves. To make one people and one language. There's a temptation inside of us. To make a great name for ourselves. And to... Make a world where everyone is the same. I'm not talking about the same opportunities. I'm not talking about equality. I'm talking about sameness. In fact, one of the major things that gets in the way of a more just world is us wanting to create a more same world. Because as soon as something is outside of our preferences or as soon as something is more difficult for us, we tend to shy away from it. It's uncomfortable. It doesn't look right. It doesn't sound right. And even in our good intentions, we can create a world of sameness. The way of the world is to make a great name for ourselves and to make a world where everyone is the same as us. So the world, the flesh, and the devil seem to be pitted against God's purposes And God's people so in light of that how do we fight against this because here's the thing we live in a modern society so we like to think of ourselves as much more sophisticated than the Neanderthals of the Old Testament but we don't have to look very far outside of our own life, actions, home, community, place of work, to see that the world, the flesh, and the devil is tripping us up to. From accomplishing the purposes that God has given us. So we need to receive this word from the Old Testament, and we need to see it as a warning. And we need to come away with some responses to this warning about the world, the flesh, and the and the devil. So here's a few things we can take away really from this three week study of sin. Not that we're going to move on from sin because it's kind of a big part of scripture and it's a big part of our lives, but we've really been on a kick here in this little mini series the last three weeks as we just see corruption upon corruption upon corruption and sin. Here's some takeaways as we transition out of this mini series on sin. First, we need to praise God for amazing grace. It is only by his amazing grace that he chose Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham and Sarah, Hagar, Jacob, Leah, you, me, all of us. As we see the corruption of man, as we see the corruption in these Old Testament would-be saviors, as we see the own corruption in our own hearts, we are just left with amazing grace. This is such bad news that we're talking about, that we've been talking about for three weeks. We should come away thinking, can anyone get it right? And the answer is no, we can't get it right. All we're left with is needing good news. And Jesus provides that good news, which we'll get to you in just a moment. We praise God for amazing grace. We praise God that he would choose people like we see in scripture and people like you and me. Second, as we praise God for amazing grace, we also take sin seriously. Sin is not accidentally doing something the wrong way. We make mistakes all the time. Often we think of sin as a mistake. Genesis chapter 4, the Lord warned Cain, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, won't you be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is against you, but you must rule over it. He is warning Cain, this sin will devour you. You have an enemy that will devour you. Sin is something to be taken very seriously. We take sin so casually. We need to take sin Seriously, we often get stuck in the emotional feeling of shame of feeling separated from God, but we can take sin very casually. And in order to come overcome that shame and in order to not take sin casually, we need to call sin what it is. We need to repent of and confess of our sin more specifically and take it more seriously seriously. If we don't, we start viewing sin as something we accidentally do or a predisposition or the weakness of our Enneagram number. Instead of seeing it for what it really is, it's sin against a holy God. So we need to call it by what it is instead of generic names or labels. And lastly, we need to take it so seriously that we don't hide it. We need to talk about it. If we are a people of grace, if we just acknowledge that it's amazing grace and it's great news that God would choose people like us, we can be very honest with one another about how we're really doing and what we're really struggling with. Over the last two years, one of the greatest gifts that God has given me Is Jeff Thompson contacting me every two weeks and us sitting down together for a time where we just confess sin to each other and we encourage each other? Joe and I are doing something similar. This is a great gift in our life to be honest about our sin. We need to take sin seriously. Next, we need to stay on task. We need to stay on task. The Tower of Babel, people came together to make a great name for themselves and make one people with one language and they got off task. That was not the work that God had given humans to do. We need to stay on task. The goal of most civilizations is to make a great name for ourselves. There are Wonderful men and women here in Iowa City that are trying to make a great name for Iowa City. And no matter what you think about more skyscrapers being in Iowa City, I'm a city kid at heart. I love it. I love that we have a bougie bowling alley next to a bougie movie theater in a high rise. It makes my heart happy to see those things. For you, it may make you sick to your stomach. That's fine. I understand that. But we have amazing men and women in this community that they want more high rises. They want more things. They want more tourism into Iowa City because they're trying to make a great name for Iowa City. And that's great. That's wonderful. I love Iowa City. I love all the different kinds of things, great restaurants and coffee shops and things that we have here in Iowa City. I love living here. I came here to be here for four years and 16 years later, I'm still here. I love it. But let's not get off task. The purpose is not to make Iowa City great or the University of Iowa great or Grace Community Church great. Great. It's to make a great name for God because he has a great name and we want more people to know about it and to step into the kingdom by grace through faith. So that may look like you being one of those men and women that tries to make Iowa City great, that's fine. But it's not just for that purpose. It's to make a great name for Jesus' great name. We need to stay on task Babel is people coming together to find one language, but there was an event in Acts that was the reverse or the undoing of Babel. And it was at Pentecost where people came together from different tribes, tongues, nations, and people, and they heard the gospel in their language. And then they were dispersed because of the advancements of the Roman roads. And they went back to where they were from and they took the gospel all over the known world. I read a book that, was just incredible, a historian that wrote about how Africa shaped the Christian mind, and he talked about how most likely, because of the Nile River and the gospel expanding from Pentecost, that the gospel reached inland Africa in the first 90 years of Christianity. That was God saying, if you're not going to be on task, I'm going to bring you together. I'm going to make sure you understand the gospel, and I'm going to send you back out where you came from. God continually is putting his people back on task no matter what it takes. And many of our problems come from getting off of task. We start making our job and our family and our relationships and our church life about making a great name or a comfortable little world for ourselves. And we need to make sure we are staying on task. Fourth, God's purposes will be fulfilled. God's purposes will be fulfilled. God's promises to his people were dependent upon his covenant and his word and not theirs. And that's really good news because they've fumbled the ball over and over and over again. And so do we. God has a great purpose and out of his grace, he invites us in. He invites us into his kingdom work. And his purposes will be fulfilled. It is incredible to me as I read scripture that God's purposes just continue to happen. Because between the Tower of Babel and Pentecost, God's people fumbled over and over and over again. Sorry, I got football in the mind. I try not to use the sports metaphors and things like that, but the Chiefs kicked off 22 minutes ago, and I got football in the mind. God's people just keep fumbling the ball from the Tower of Babel to Pentecost, but it doesn't change God at work. The New Testament, a lot of the New Testament, is Jesus and then the disciples and then apostles and prophets from there telling God's people the kingdom of God is advancing whether you're on board or not. Even to the Jewish people. That leads Paul to write that the gospel has become a stumbling block even to Jews. The Jews are like, this can't be what the kingdom of God looks like. But the kingdom of God keeps moving forward no matter what. No matter what the people who claim his name do, he is going to continue to advance his kingdom. These implications are real and true, but we can make a mistake by seeing it as a checklist. And part of you is going to wake up tomorrow morning or even as you're going to bed tonight, you're going to say, I can't remember What the third point was, or you're gonna think, I can't remember what the first, second, third, or fourth point was. I do the same thing. We have a tendency to make this out to be a checklist. We have a tendency to say, yeah, but, and then fill in the blank and think about our own struggles, our own suffering, our own weaknesses. We think about how powerful the world, the flesh, and the devil are. We think about how many times we have failed. We are tempted by feeling shame and separation from God and his people. That's why tonight we need to end focusing on our Savior and what he did to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. Jesus took on the world. But in the face of temptation, he always did the will of the father. He did not bow to the wishes of the religious establishment. He did not bow to the wishes of his own disciples and best friends. He did not bow to the wishes of the culture around him, but stood for the purposes and plan and will of God. Jesus took on the world and defeated it at every turn. Jesus went Literally in a duel with the devil in the desert and by the word of God and through prayer, he overcame the enemy of God and his purposes. Even when the devil thought he had won by the very people he came to save, hanging him on a cross, Jesus had the last word. And Jesus took on his own flesh. He was fully God, but he was also fully man. And at every turn, he denied the flesh and said yes to the spirit and the things of God. He took on the flesh to deny his own flesh so he could die in the flesh for you and for me. Jesus is the savior. Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the overcomer. Jesus is the victorious one when we continue to stumble and fall. And so if you feel defeated, if you feel like you're going to circumvent the whole thing, if you're going to undercut the whole thing that God is trying to do, take heart in what Christ has done for you. He knew that we would stumble and fall. That's why he came to give his very life. The covenant, the promise of God always rested on his faithfulness and jesus was the promised offspring of the woman that came to defeat the world the flesh and the devil